This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make lightning protection easy. If your wind turbines are due for maintenance or repairs, install our Strike Tape Retrofit LPS upgrade at the same time. A Strike Tape installation is the quick, easy solution that provides a dramatic, long-lasting boost to the factory lightning protection system. Forward-thinking windsight owners install Strike Tape today to increase uptime tomorrow. Learn more in the show notes of today's podcast. Welcome back. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And I'm Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Podcast, bringing you the latest in wind energy tech, news, and policy. All right, welcome back to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's episode, we've got a bunch of great topics. First, we're going to talk about um, just some of the economic uh, trouble ahead. A lot of top wind turbine manufacturers are expecting another difficult year. Uh, specifically, we'll jump into Vestas and, you know, is Vestas in trouble? Their outlook is not great. And we're going to talk through some of their issues specifically. We'll also talk about China joining, um, you know, the European and American push for more wind energy. Uh, Ming Yang and Goldwind are coming after that market pretty hard. We'll also talk about GE, which is now splitting off into three separate entities uh, in the next couple of years. We'll talk about the uh, American Bird Conservatory, which is an increasingly hostile group towards wind energy, um, obviously advocating for wildlife, but it's the, they, they pose a pretty difficult threat to a lot of different wind projects, and there's some far-reaching implications there. And then lastly, we'll talk about Lieber and some of their three-row blade bearings and whether they might be to, able to increase longevity in some of these in the cells. So before we get going, we just want to remind you, you can subscribe to Uptime Tech News, which is our weekly uh, podcast update and newsletter from you know all things wind energy around the web. And also be sure to subscribe to Rosemary's YouTube channel, which she puts out live streams and, and new great videos on everything renewable energy each week. So you'll find both of those in the, uh, the show notes or the description of today's podcast. So first thing up, you know, we've heard a lot about this in the news cycle recently. Everyone's excited about wind energy, but wind turbine manufacturers are really getting squeezed and they're preparing for another tough year of supply chain issues, uh, commodity prices surging, inflation. Um, Alan, what's uh, what's your perspective here? Is this really going to continue to be a tough time ahead or is there going to be maybe some light at the end of the tunnel? Uh, I think right now they're all getting hammered on the stock prices because stock prices are an outlook in the, to the six and month to one year time period. So you're trying to see out in the future. And what the stock prices are saying is that there's going to be continued inflation, continued expenses in raw materials, and it can continued increase in costs in transportation. So those coupled together, coupled with the fact that they have wind turbine manufacturers have existing contracts that are sort of fixed in time, uh, that you're going to get wiped out. Uh, You're going to end up losing money on contracts unless you can go back and renegotiate them. But I'm sure there's some uh, inflation adjustments, but I, no one envisioned the inflation we're going through right now. It's somewhere in the five to eight percent range. It seems to fluctuate sort of day to day. But those kinds of inflation rates haven't been seen in a decade or probably probably three decades. So it's really hard for large industrial companies who are living on very slim margins 
to make money. And what we're going to continue to see for the, at least for the next for couple of weeks is declining stock prices, in my opinion, declining stock prices, which does not fare well for a renewable economy. And Rosemary, I, I, I just wonder what you're seeing too from the Australian point of view. Yeah, I haven't noticed as much talk about it here. Mostly the articles I've seen have been more Europe and US focused, although, I mean, Australia is never insulated, even if we're far away, uh, geographically speaking. But I think, I mean, there's definitely cost cost pressures that are going to continue in the, the future. And I think that, I mean, there's not so much that you can do to prevent that. You can plan for it and have, um, you know, ways to deal with it so that your company doesn't go bankrupt while you wait for a situation to get more favourable. But what I think the real solution is to not just focus on the cost part, which has been what um, wind energy and solar energy has been really focused on the last few decades, getting costs lower, lower, lower. You need to focus on the the value side as well, and that's where at the moment we're getting squeezed on you know both sides. You know, costs are going up, values going down as we get more renewable penetration. So, I think like if I'm going to choose where I'm going to put my money in renewable companies, it's going to be the ones that are focused on that other side. So you know that uh, are getting into energy storage um, and you know thinking of, of projects that are going to deliver value. Offshore is another another way to get more value out of your your wind resource. So, yeah, that's my my prediction for which companies are going to going to go well in the future. So let's talk about Vestas, you know, and there's a lot of red flags and some really negative warning signs right now. You know, Vestas has lowered its earnings outlook and it's expecting its EBITDA to be around 4%, which is down from five to 7% and about half of what they were expecting uh, in 2020. So uh, Alan, is Vestas, are they in trouble here? They definitely are in a financial cash flow pinch. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And the stock price will, will point to that. Uh, they've had some shakeups in, in the CFO position recently. Uh, and from just listening to the industry and different viewpoints of the industry, uh, a lot of people will tell you that Vestas is really struggling on cash flow. And it's not so much what the value of your stock is. It's what's happening cash flow day to day. Can you pay your bills? Because most companies fail on cash flow. Not to say Vestas is going to fail, but that's where you're going to focus your most of your attention at right now is cash flow. And I think what's happening now is that Vestas is really going to tighten the belt on where the cash outlays are and to limit them or to push them off as, as far as they can. They're probably going to limit hiring. They're probably not going to expand into new research areas. They're probably going to close down research projects. They're probably going to you know, basically stay where they're at right now technology-wise for the next year or two and try to make some sales that like Rosemary was talking about in offshore where there may be a little more value there to increase their profit margins because if they don't and they continue on the same trajectory, it could be really catastrophic. So I, I, I we're watching sort of uh, upper management investors really grab hold of the ship and start to steer it day to day. That's smart business. Because if you didn't see that, you'd be even more concerned about it. And Rosemary, you were concerned when you heard some of their higher ups talking about, hey, maybe we can slow down. You know, we'd like to see growth of the size of some of these wind turbines slow down. I mean, you took that as kind of a bad omen. 
Yeah, well, it's not that I thought that it was an unusual thing to say. I just thought it was an unusual thing for someone in senior leadership to be saying that they're, you know, they're a participant in this design trend for larger and larger turbines. They've got what the biggest or at least one of the very biggest um, turbines announced. And then to say, you know, this is a bad idea that turbines are continuing to grow so fast. I just thought that that just really sounded like a there's some at the top, there's some disagreement about what their strategy should be. So in that sense, I wasn't surprised to hear that, you know, things aren't going as as well for them right now. But I mean, I will be so, so sad if I, if we see Vestas fold. Um, I mean, I don't think that that's imminent, but even I'm going to be really disappointed if we do start to see some of their research programs shutting down. And I'm sure that it will happen. I'm, you know, having been working in companies that have been through these same sorts of things, that's, that's what you do when um, your cash flow is squeezed. You, you stop activities that aren't going to make money for a lot of years. But that's one of the things that I have appreciated about Vestas, um, is some of their like real forward thinking far ahead research. Like just recently, I um, talked about their multi-rotor design that they um, they trialed a couple of years ago, I think 2016 to 2018, never thinking this was going to be a product that they would be making money off in the next few years. But, you know, they're, they're learning a lot about the, the future direction, the future boundaries, so that, you know, when um, when we get to the point that we can't just make a bigger turbine. They already know how to quickly move to the the next thing, and I, I thought that that kind of forward thinking is is really good. And it will be such a shame if they have to, you know, scrap whatever secret research projects they've got on at the moment. <laughs> you know, that's not going to be good for them in ten years' time. But that's the reality of, yeah, of staying in business. Yeah, you're right. It's a shame to see a company that's so interested in research and and pushing the boundaries of of what you know any industry could be. Uh, to have to contract and sort of get into that sort of, you know, self-preservation mode. One thing that Vestas is doing, which is very smart, uh, I think there may be a little bit of plateau, natural plateau right now in terms of the growth of wind turbines because it's been growing so rapidly. They need to take a deep breath and make sure what they're building is is as is, quality as they think that it is. But you need to preserve jobs here in terms of the e- economics of Denmark and all the countries that Vestas is invested in. Losing jobs right now is a huge sink to the economies. And it, it, if you're going to preserve cash, you're going to preserve cash for a reason. One, to maintain the company. But two, you're hopefully going to maintain those jobs. And I think in the trade-off of R&D right now versus jobs, I hope they decide for jobs because I think longer term, you want to keep those core people in your organization. Yeah, I agree. And if um, they lose the the people, then they lose a lot of the benefit from their previous research anyway, because you can't put everything down mm, in a report. Yeah. You know, some of it needs to stay in the company culture and, you know, with enough people around in the canteen to, to chat about a new project and like, oh, that sounds like something I did a while ago. You know, you can't just start fresh every time that you go through a, you know, a new economic cycle. Yeah, that's a good point. You can't distill everything you've learned through research and many years on the job into, like you said, a report. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a great point. Yeah, and you can't underestimate the um, importance of the Danish canteen. I, I, I always say, people say, you know, what did you... What did you like most about working in Denmark? Number one is the canteen. <laughs> and it's uh, not just because someone made me food every day and I didn't have to pay much for it. It's it's because of, you know, like the just the, the chatting opportunities that you really get so far when you're, you know, in that idea generating phase of a, a project or you've got a problem you need to solve. That's You do that by informal chats in the, the canteen. So, yeah, I... <laughs> 
Definitely appreciated that part of, of working in Denmark. So moving on to China and their push into different markets, um, Alan, I know you obviously have a lot of thoughts about, about Chinese innovation, um, but, you know, Goldwind and Mingyang, they are trying to make inroads into uh, the European market, the United States market. And I assume there's probably going to be some pushback. I mean, is that the, the right way to characterize it about Chinese um, technology coming to the U.S.? Yes, absolutely. There will be big pushback, I think. And even even in the quote-unquote Western Hemisphere, North and South America, there will be pushback from the United States on Chinese enter, entering that marketplace, for sure. Before I get Rosemary's take, I mean, what what is the main concern with something like this? I mean, what, what would Chinese manufacturing, you know, this heavy machinery, obviously a wind turbine, why is that an issue in the U.S.? Why are people concerned about that? I think it's twofold. One is that we've went through the... Um, era of steel, which was being dumped in America and did a real damage to the steel industry in the United States and across the world. So there's only so long that your industries can hang on when you have a a supplier that is way under market prices. And I think that's likely what the play is here. Uh, China can do things for much less cost than they can be done in the United States or in Europe because their labor costs are so much less. And they're getting subsidized in multiple ways by uh, the, the government. And the United States sees renewable energy as we, we just watched COP26 happen. There's a lot of real geopolitical relationships that are tied to energy. And so if you're trying to establish your um, sort of network of of dominance, one of those key areas is renewables. And we see China's trying to enter into India's market, trying to build a relationship with India. That's a strategic alliance there, which is competing against the United States. So it used to be just munitions and arms was the key to build relationships or oil was the key to build relationships long-term with countries and establish your dominance. Now we're seeing that transition into things like renewables, which is not a place that we would have conceived of five, 10 years ago. But I think that's what's about to happen. You see it in nuclear, you see it in wind, you see it in solar, in which basically the United States got its brains beat out in solar. That is, we will learn, the United States has learned a lesson. I think the rest of the world has learned a lesson about that. And we'll take proactive steps in a typical U.S. administration, we'd be taking proactive steps about that. I'm not sure with this administration they're going to be ready to deal with that sort of problem, and that's where it gets a little murky, right? Uh, there's so many uh, interactions with the, the Chinese government at the moment that you, you just never know where a company like GE, who's going, who's going to be stuck in the middle of that, where they're going to end up, right? And I think that's – if I'm GE – and I'm do and I'm GE Wind. I am really concerned about that. And Rosemary, I think the same thing. You're closer to China than than we are, and I think <laughs> you probably see that influence happen on the way things can happen in Australia too. Yeah, I mean, if we're thinking purely in terms of um, trade and politics, I guess, if anything, this would be a, a good development for Australia because China gets a lot of their raw materials from from Australia. We don't manufacture any wind turbines that we're worried about being undercut on. Um, so, yeah, in that sense, maybe, maybe Australia's happy. I, I'm not sure. 
Um, but I do think, I mean, a lot of the time people have this impression that, you know, the quality is um, low out of China and that's something that I am often correcting people's kind of uh, opinion on. I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, the company I used to work for, we had factories all over the world and, I mean, to a certain extent the quality is the same everywhere because it has to be, you know, you can't have blades leaving the factory that are bad quality, but it's definitely easier to get good quality in some places than it is to get it in others and um, the Chinese factories were absolutely nowhere near the, the bottom of the of that pile. So um, I, I think that it's misguided if you assume that um, European and um, American manufacturers are going to automatically win on quality, then I would think that, um, you know, you can't, you definitely can't assume that. It's super hard to compete on cost. And I guess that that's the, the risk and the political risk is that, you know, like we saw with, with steel or, you know, it happens between different countries and all sorts of um, industries. And China is actually saying the same thing about Australia at the moment, that we're dumping products on them. They, you know, they say we're dumping our, our wine on them or, you know, something like that for a low price. And then that can affect the, um, the ability for the local manufacturers to stay in business if they're just, you know, consistently being undercut. Um, and I know from personal experience how hard it is to compete on cost with the Chinese manufacturers. You know, sometimes I would get an estimate of, or, you know, someone would say what, what a competitor, a Chinese competitor was selling the same type of system for. And it's just like, I just cannot see how you would even get half the raw materials that you would need for that price. So that's a challenge and how much you believe, you know, that they're really selling things for what they, they, um, they yeah. make them for. That's, you know another mm -hmm. topic but i don't think that you know trying to race to the bottom on cost is going to be the successful strategy either it's like i was saying before you know it's really going to be about the value um so that, that's <laughs> probably keep on saying that over and over again but i think looking forward manufacturers have to see what's the what's the valuable markets that you can get into and how can we get there first to get that value yeah they're talking about 40 percent cheaper wind turbines coming out of china than to, to Europe, uh, Europe or US. I mean, that's we're talking about a $15 million wind turbine for $9 million coming out of China. That's a gigantic cost difference that, you know, you're putting 100 of these out in the ocean. Talking about a you know, $600 million difference. It's not a small amount of money. So, yeah, I think that's a, that's a huge concern. I mean, and I, that, that's a good point you raised, which when you look at the bill, you're like, how, how do they do this? Like, that doesn't even make sense. Like, the raw materials cost more than that. Yeah, so that's it's a it's a frightening situation. All manufacturers have been just relentlessly driving down cost for at least you know the last decade, especially. Just it's like I can't tell you enough how how relentless it feels. You're working in the company, and it's just that's 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 ninety percent of what engineers are doing is trying to make the cost of their products cheaper without you know sacrificing any of the the other things that it's supposed to do. So it's not going to be easy to find that that 40 percent that's for sure yeah and it's hard as a as a businessman you're you're looking at the numbers and like how can you say no i don't want a 600 million dollar discount if you have a you know like it's just it's such a big number and as obviously it's a theoretical number but it, it like it, it just almost breaks your brain where you're like how can i turn that down but yet i don't know alan i mean if you're in, in that position how, what do you do there well they're going to take the decision away away the United States mm. and Europe will take that decision away from the potential buyers, and they're just going to say uh, they're going to go to the World Court or whatever that organization is that decides these trade issues and say it's dumping. 
and we we want to block it or we want to we want to tariff it. We want to double the the cost of it by putting tariffs on it, which is what the United States would normally do in this situation. And I think Europe will end up doing it also. I don't see how Denmark sits by the sidelines or Germany or or Spain sits on the sidelines of this and watches their industries collapse and the loss of jobs and the loss of technology happen simultaneously on something that they've invested so much time and so much energy into. They're not going to let that, quote unquote, investment go away. And it'll be subtle, right? And it won't be things that you see necessarily in the press. There'll be trade policy discussions, changes of policy that none of us will see in the New York Times. But slowly, you will see essentially a a, a quasi blockade of Chinese uh, wind turbines in the States and in other places because they really don't have any choice. Uh, uh, GE won't be around, or GE Energy won't be around if if they're going to let Chinese companies sell at such a reduced price. That just cannot happen. Yeah, and of course, and this is an interesting discussion that happens in all sorts of industries. And I remember I listened to a podcast by the founder of um, this, the popular fitness product, the TRX strap this is a former military guy who developed this strap. And, you know, if you're a, a big exercise buff, you, I'm sure you've seen these yellow straps in your gym, right? And they're not cheap. They're like well-made and well-manufactured. They do a lot of marketing. Anyway, so they're selling for like 200 $250, something like that. But he talked about how the company almost went bankrupt because as they went on Amazon, um, suddenly they were flooded by literal copies coming out of China and other places that were less than half the cost, like not even close. Where as a consumer, you're like, well, that looks the same. It's $80 versus $250. That's a no-brainer. But yet as a small company, you're not going to have the regulatory protection. Like, no one's going to come and save you. Like, oh, you can't do this. Um, and so then it's like you can litigate, which they did, and they won. But even that's such an expensive process. So I get, you know, it's it's at least lucky at this scale where it's at the this it's such heavy machinery and more at like the utility scale where like you said, companies can get support from governments and this is going to be a, a major political regulatory issue, international trade issue, rather than just for some of these small companies that are just going to have to close up shop if they get undercut like that. So yeah, this is a, it's an interesting struggle and one, unfortunately, that is seen by lots of different companies and lots of different industries. So let, let's shift to GE uh, kind of on that thread. So GE is planning to break up um, their conglomerate, which, you know, we've all been sort of talking about the um, the good old days of GE, right, and how they've really changed, uh, especially recently. But they're going to officially break up and no longer be this big conglomerate. They're going to go into three separate companies. So their healthcare business will be one. Um, and then they will combine renewable energy, their fossil fuel power and digital units into a second. And then their GE Aviation and uh, their jet engine division will be the third spinoff. So, Alan, I mean, how do you feel like this is going to affect... Uh, GE going forward? Is this is this the right move? Well, when I saw the announcement, it was like mind blown. Like, what is happening in the world? End it's of an it's era. almost surreal, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Oh yeah, end end of a of a hundred years of dominance in so many different areas that it's hard to conceive, right? Uh, because GE was in light bulbs, they were in jet engines, they were in plastics, they were in uh, power distribution, they were in generators, now they're in wind turbines, they were in healthcare, they were in insurance, they were in financing, they were in leasing, they were in all aerospace, right? And they, they were making satellites, which I used to work in. Uh, 
they were in every conceivable industry, making washing machines, making refrigerators, that to now break it down to only three sectors, making jet engines, making renewable uh, energy, wind turbines, and and power generation systems. And then uh, what's the other one? Healthcare. Yeah. So that's what's left after all of that. And it really, the precipice for it was insurance, that the insurance business and the finance business cost that company so much money. They could never really recover from the losses. It could never offload those losses because no one would take them. And and so I think it has a a couple of, of things to learn from. First of all, every company is vulnerable. Every company is vulnerable, and you have to be diligent all the time. There is no company, especially in renewables, that can rest on the laurels at this point. GE did it for a while and has paid a really expensive price for it. The The, the second part, I think, is that uh, you have to continue to evolve. And, and GE has kind of taken the position years ago when I worked there of either number one, number two, or you're gone. Well, that's really hard to do. You know, when GE made locomotives, they were number two. Well, they sold it, right? So they were not number one in appliances. They sold it. So you you, you have this attrition of yourself that doesn't make necessarily make a lot of sense. It may bring some stockholder value in the short term, but it's not in the long term. That's for certain. And so there's so many nuances to this because you're talking about a company that employed probably a significant portion of the U.S. population at some point. It's kind of like Ford or General Motors. Like there was probably a hundred, well, there had to be more than a hundred thousand employees. Uh, There's probably 300,000 at one point. That sort of shift and market shift or something that we really needed to, to take in consideration and realize as a country, is that good? Obviously evolving is good. Having better markets is good. Uh, but there's some sort of uh, imbalance here, and maybe GE took too many risks. Now the risk they're playing, the consequence for it, that uh, you know, how does? And I'll, I'll give you the example. SpaceX is SpaceX around twenty years from now? Tesla, right? I, I, I think the companies we think are invincible now: Facebook, Amazon, uh, SpaceX, Tesla, uh, Google. Are they around 20, 30, 40 years from now? Maybe, maybe not. But as an economy evolves, those are really tough periods, right? America is, in a sense, losing its industrial base. And I'm not sure, even if you're looking from the outside in from Australia, I'm not sure that's a good place for the world to be. Well, this is uh, obviously the work of Larry Culp, the CEO, and he's done a good job trimming a lot of their debt since he took the helmet in 2008 or 2018, sorry. And he sold off a lot of those other businesses, right? He's like, look, we don't need this. Um, We're going to offload this stuff. And I think that actually is kind of a parallel to another thing that happened here in the U.S. with Amtrak. And so when you talk about the, you know, the, the shining good old days of GE, it seems like they had a lot of CEOs along the way that continued to hold that shiny view of it. Like we don't want to break up what GE was, which was maybe to its future detriment. Right. And now Mr. Culp seems to have been like, look, we're going to do what needs to be done. We're not going to, we're not going to live in the past anymore. Um, you know, whether that ends up being the right move or not. And that's a similar thing that actually happened. It seems like with Amtrak, Amtrak, has had a lot of routes that have been very unprofitable. 
And in part because they've always had CEOs that were within the company that rise up and sort of had this what the what the the railroad system is supposed to be like what Amtrak should be rather than doing what was maybe best for Amtrak. And then the former Delta CEO took the helm at Amtrak recently, and he's like, look. He didn't have that shiny feeling about what Amtrak used to be. He's like, look, I'm going to make this profitable and I'm going to make hard decisions that maybe other CEOs didn't want to make because they have, again, this sort of um, shiny view of what Amtrak always was. And it seems like he's done a great job as well, um, as a side note, of, of making Amtrak a lot closer to being a profitable company whereas they'd floundered for a long time. So, Rosemary, what, what's your take on GE? I know from the investing side, you find it problematic when they're so sort of sprawling because you put your money in and it might be investing in something you don't necessarily want it to. So um, how do you feel about the, this breaking up into three separate entities? Well, to me, it makes sense. I mean, I've always found it a bit strange how many pies GE had their fingers in, so to speak. I've actually just recently started a rewatch of 30 Rock and the first time that I watched it, I had never worked at GE and now it's actually – adds a real extra <laughs> extra layer it's it's, it's very very clever um yeah a very clever take on ge culture and i know uh, i just watched an episode where um uh, alec baldwin's character i think it's jack donahue comes in and he's the vp of um tv and microwave programming or i can't remember the wording <laughs> but yeah um, and it's it's just like i mean they did have a tv station at one point and they did have like all these just kind of ridiculous things and people would say to me when i was working there but you know like what does ge do and i'm like oh well i guess for the most part it's turbines but then also healthcare and and it was finance and you know like it's kind of hard to see where the synergies are between all those businesses and uh i do think that the really big company i mean there's where there's benefits and you can save money by not duplicating things that's good but it comes in with a lot of extra bureaucracy as well. So I, and bureaucracy is, you know, like really a killer for, for innovation. You need to keep your bureaucracy lean and, and targeted if you want to keep on innovating. So I do think that companies shouldn't be bigger than, than they need to be to get those synergies. So from that point of view, and, you know, having worked in the company, I, I can see the, the, the strength of, of this strategy. And I was, um, yeah, saying before we, we started recording, I was saying I was a bit surprised to see um, or maybe disappointed to see that the energy, it's still got renewables and fossil fuel energy together because, uh, I mean, for me personally, I, I'm, I wasn't that thrilled when LM got bought by GE and now I work for a company that makes money off fossil fuels. I know other people in the company thought that, including, you know, some reasonably um, high-level executives. As an investor, I don't want to invest in fossil fuels, not just because I don't believe in it, but because I know that it's going nowhere. You know, like in 50 years' time, there's not going to be any of these. Um, these companies aren't going to be profitable. So, yeah, I, I think maybe later on we'll see them split again, and we have seen some other companies split like that, um, you know, take the fossil fuels away from the renewables. So, anyway, I know Alan disagrees, so, um, Alan, tell me what you think about that. No, I, I, I really don't disagree at all. I think that's a really good take on it. And uh, I, I do think there is a need for every country to have to, – to do the heavy lifting. You're going to need massive organizations to do it. Uh, to build trains, to build aircraft, to, to, to build automotive 
complexes to 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 put up massive buildings. There's just a certain amount of, of of structure you need around that. And when you lose an organization that could do that, like GE built tanks, right? Or, or, or designed all kinds of things that you just don't hear about on the street. When you lose that sort of large industrial capability, that's not a positive for your country. And I, I, I think we've gone through a couple cycles of this from Sun Oil to the railroads to steel to you name it in the United States. And all those have been very painful. The backsides of those have been very painful. And, uh, you know, losing a GE is on one hand, you know, it, it brings new life. There's new energy in other places. Right. Instead of you're right, having a huge bureaucracy like GE is 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 definitely a negative. And they used they had a huge bureaucracy. Don't think that they didn't. But on the other hand, you, you as a country are limited on things you can do, and that's where it it takes a little bit of balance. And I'm I'm not sure we're quite in balance at the moment. Well, this is very discouraging for me because you. Two would have known this, but I was planning on starting a company, and we were going to make electric airplanes, medical devices, <laughs> and gourmet toaster pastries. So I guess I'll you know go back to the drawing board because don't want to have my hand in too many different things. But anyway, but yeah, I mean I, yeah, I get it. And my Bitcoin, mm, yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah. You, you have to buy the toaster pastries exclusively with Bitcoin or Dogecoin. <laughs> Or whatever new you know currency you make up on that day, but I think you're right, and I think the other thing that's yeah. difficult is that when you look at the traditional leadership structure, how does a CEO? I mean, even for like my hypothetical company, if you're a, a great CEO in aviation, how how do you know what's going on with your washer and dryer unit or your insurance unit? That seems very difficult to be competent in so many different things, and I think that's a little bit of an argument for the kind of like the specialization that they're doing. Like if Apple, for example, goes into healthcare which they're rumored to do, like Tim Cook is um, obviously extremely competent. He's a great leader. But like that seems like a r two big, really very different companies to run, right? And so you wonder, how is that going to work when you have a CEO who's learning a new, the new ropes of a new, very new industry and trying to control both? Those kind of feel start to feel like separate companies. But anyway, well, let's, let's move on. We could talk about that probably all day, but it is an interesting, um, interesting discussion. We'll be interested to see what happens with uh, GE's stock price. It has gone up since the news, uh, about 5% since the news was announced. So next on our, our docket is uh, the American Bird Conservancy. And they are a very powerful uh, advocacy group for, uh, obviously, for wildlife, specifically birds. And they've been running a lot of wind projects. Uh, I don't know if into the ground is the right way to put it, but they've slowed a lot of projects and they have some pretty aggressive tactics, um, filing lawsuits, litigating to get many of these projects either slowed or stalled or outright canceled. Um, Rosemary, I'll start with you. You know, this is a great article from grist.org. We'll link to it in the description below. And obviously we'll send it out uh, via Uptime Tech News. So definitely subscribe if you haven't. But uh, Rosemary, you're obviously a huge proponent of wildlife. Um, you know, your consulting firm, uh, Partalote, that's an adorable, <laughs> tiny little bird native to Australia. So <laughs> let me get your take on this first. You know, how do we find the balance between advocating for wildlife, but also not derailing uh, positive renewable energy projects? 
Well, it, I mean, it's a, a complex topic and I would definitely recommend that people check out that that article that you're going to link in the, the show notes and the newsletter because it's probably the best um, single article on birds and wind turbines that I've, I've read. It really covers the, the major issues. So it gets me pretty worked up, this, this particular topic, because I'm a bird lover um, and, uh, you know, a wind energy proponent. Um, but I guess the, the major theme for me is that, okay, so if your goal is to, to protect birds and um, probably pr- particularly protect uh, endangered species, then you should be looking at all the ways that birds are threatened and then targeting, you know, the, the, the number one threat first and kind of moving down. And so, you know, the, the biggest threats to birds and all the studies show it, it's, um, it's buildings, it's cats and it's cars and wind turbines is just way, way, way down the list there. Um, climate change is definitely above, um, wind turbines in terms of the, you know, the threat to birds and especially endangered species and, you know, like as a, as a whole. So I, I really struggle to believe that any organization that really wants to look out for birds, but they only go after wind energy pretty much. I mean, really disproportionately going after wind energy and not the other things. I mean, um, their representatives are on the record saying, you know, oh, we're not, we're not worried about coal. We're, um, you know, we're not worried about, you know, climate change anymore. We're only worried about wind turbines and how they're going to affect birds. I just think that it's a really weak position to start from. And, um, so I, I think other bird organizations, other conservation organizations, don't give this group ABC a lot of credit for being, you know, genuine in their desire to to save birds. So, yeah, I'll, I'll start with that. <laughs> I think it really can impact uh, the United States and particular states that are willing to let that agenda drive decisions. And New York State is probably the leading, maybe in California, or probably the two in which they're going to have the most influence because they have a, a, a willing group to participate with them in, in terms of the population base. But it's really going to hurt the the citizens of New York State, which is really close to us here. Uh, I'll give you an example. Wind turbines in New York State just have not done anything. There's only limited numbers of them, and they really haven't done anything recently in terms of renewables to speak of. Um, they're shutting down nuclear. They're going to shut off any kind of existing fossil fuel-driven electricity system. And they have n- really, when they've tried to done any, do anything with uh, wind turbines, they get stopped on environmental causes and on multiple occasions to the point that New York State has formed an agency about citing just to litigate these things with, outside of the court, just to provide a little bit of a form to hash these discrepancies out or these, these arguments out. And the state of New York has not been very successful. Uh, I think, Rosemary, you probably nailed it in saying that if you throw up big numbers of bird losses, which there, there's no doubt there are some significant bird losses, and not downplaying that at all, there are, uh, from renewables and wind in particular, uh, but they're not in balance with the other leading causes of bird deaths, right? And, and so you have to – there is no decision you're going to make that's in a vacuum. You're going to make a decision, and it's going to have consequences, positive and negative. And, and the goal of engineers 
my take on it is we should be doing things to to limit the amount of birds that run into, run around wind turbines. That's the thing I think is solvable. Nothing is stagnant in the engineering world ever. And given enough uh, energy toward it, I think we can make a significant impact. And I think Dan and I have talked about in the podcast over the last year, technologies and changes are being made to reduce that. So, you know, I'm with you, Rosemary. I think there's, 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 they're rightfully making an argument that bird deaths need to be reduced. Totally agree. At the same time, we can't assume there's a cat, that the earth is on a catastrophic uh, pathway. <laughs> because if that's the case, then why do we care? Then nothing matters, right? And I, and I, I don't want to live in a world where nothing matters. <laughs> now, hopefully nobody else does either, but that's what it feels like. This doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Uh, if people go hungry, it doesn't matter. If uh, people don't have electricity, it doesn't matter. If there's, you know, inadequate water supply, it doesn't matter. It does matter. And we can do both. We can reduce and take care of our natural resources, and we can feed people, take care of people, provide health care, provide food. Those things are not at opposite ends of a spectrum right now. Do you see that too, Rosemary? Yeah. And I mean, I think uh, you're definitely right. And, and what's, what makes this issue so difficult is that we do need to site wind turbines appropriately um, so that they, they don't injure um, birds and especially endangered birds. Um, but there's a definite balance there. And um, so on the one hand, yes, we, de- we need to do everything we, we can. But on the other hand, in many cases, they are doing everything that they can. And, you know, you still see opposition from people who, in my opinion, I do not have the, the, the birds aren't their main issue. The main issue is that they want to stop wind um, energy and birds mm-hmm. has become a really, really effective lever to, to halt any specific um, wind farm. I mean, uh, in sure. the article, it was mentioning all the lengths that they have gone to with this, how do you say it, like Erie or Erie? Anyway, this this wind farm development, they have gone through um, a, a lot of environmental impact assessments and they figured out which part of the lake has uh, significant bird um, activity and the wind farm is located very far away from that in order to protect them. Um, they've also uh, agreed to more measures. I'm just reading um, from the article now. So they have pledged to slow the turbine speeds at times of high migration, install collision detection technology, measure bird and back activity before, during, after construction, invest in a flushing light system. I mean, they're, they're doing all the, the things. And um, first, I mean, it, it really, I find it frustrating that we demand all this and and more. I mean, it's still not enough, all this. Um, we demand all that for, for wind energy, which is ultimately, you know, um, tackling some of the, the bigger problems for birds like, you know, climate change and particulate pollution and oil spills. We demand this of wind energy, but not the, you know, incumbent technologies. So, you know, it's something common across all kinds of renewable energy that they have to, you know, be new technologies have to be perfect, but old ones um, are allowed to be flawed. And, and then it's like you look at individual projects one by one and there's always a reason to not do an individual project because, you know, something will be harmed and you can have definitely sympathy for that and especially the people that live in that area and, you know, and, and love it. But when you add all them together as a whole, you end up with no renewable energy, which means that you have 
just more and more and more fossil fuels and that's far worse for, for everyone. So you can't just think locally, you have to also think uh, globally. And we see, you know, a similar kind of opposite interpretation of that in Australia at the moment. You know, koalas um, are really missing habitat. But we see for native forest logging, the approvals tend to happen much more on a local scale. Oh, this particular bit of land that you want to log, it's only a small proportion of koala habitat, so it's okay to log that. But then when you add it all up, you end up with, with no trees left for them to live in. So it's not enough to to just have local environmental approvals, you also need a broader policy that gets the, you know, the state or the country um, implementation correct. And I think that's something that we we need to iron out um, uh, everywhere around the world. It's not unique to America, I don't think. Yeah, and here's a, a short quote from the article, um, and this is about someone who asked a, a question at a symposium about the icebreaker project. So this is the last paragraph of the article. It says, later, a lifelong birder in the audience asked about ABC's position on Ohio's coal industry, which has polluted Lake Erie with enough mercury to threaten the viability of local loons and bald eagles. Uh, Wagner, this is the person, still remembers the ABC official's response. Coal is not our concern. So there's definitely like, yeah, like you said, it's, it's, it's kind of like as a kid, like if you're with your friends and you're all doing the same thing, like you're all, all screwing off, but only one of you gets in trouble. Like the teacher, like, wait, why am I the only one getting punished here? <laughs> That's definitely how this seems. And it's, it doesn't seem like they're really going to many, many lengths to even hide it. All right. So we're going to transition to our last topic for today. And this is, uh, some interesting, um, engineering here for, uh, wind turbines. And this is Liebherr, so L-I-E-B-H-E-R-R. I need to spell that out because it's uh, difficult to, to get it through on, uh, on audio here. But they've made three-row blade bearings that they say are going to help uh, increase um, the, the service life of wind turbines, even under the really high loads that obviously these gigantic new models are facing. So we've talked about you know gearing, uh, bearings and gearboxes being one of the one of the, the pieces of engineering within a, a wind turbine that's more difficult to extend the service life of as the turbines as a whole and the blades get more and more durable and can last longer and longer. Uh, we've discussed on past episodes about how just gearboxes are still going to have maybe a, a relatively shorter and, and limited uh, shelf life. Um, so, Rosemary, what, what do you see here with this technology from Lieber? Obviously, they're a a leader in this kind of um, in this heavy machinery and these and bearings and, and such products. But um, I mean, is this a, just a tiny increment or is it something that might actually make a pretty meaningful impact? Well, I haven't seen the, the bearings specifically, but um, pitch bearings is definitely one of the pain points for wind turbines and especially for longer lifetimes. It's not so easy to uh, design a, a bearing that's going to last for, you know, say 30, 40 years if we want to move to increasingly longer durations as much as, you know, for most other turbine components. Like if you want a stronger blade, you just put more material and it will last longer. And the same with the, the tower. It's, I wouldn't say it's easy, but relative to bearings, it is easy. So I think it's definitely an area that um, has needed some technology advancement. And I mean, there's been, there has been a lot over the last few decades. It's, um, there's a big difference in how reliable they are now compared to, you know, the ones that were installed 20 years ago. Um, so the, the trend in pitch bearings is, yeah, for improved technology that's increasing um, reliability and lengthening lifetimes. So I say this as, uh, yeah, another another step along that path. We're trying to tackle some of the more 
difficult engineering challenges when you're moving such massive pieces of equipment on bearings. Uh, the where point is the bearings, and to 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 define that technology and to spend the amount of money that Lee Beer probably has poured into this project is is a is substantial. Right, and the concern I have is when we drive these new pieces of technology, do they get implemented? I hope so. Uh, and are they are they economical? Right, uh, so they're going to try to recover the cost of of designing these bearings. The I think that sort of a a touch point here in terms of new technology and in terms of wind turbines is what's going to happen economically. I know it sounds weird to talk about that way, but a, a company that is driving. Real probably real change in the in the lifetime of wind turbines needs to be profitable, and it needs to needs it can't get driven down to just making you know one or two percentage points. They need to make six, seven, eight percentage points on profit. And the way things are going at the moment, it'll be very hard for them, even if they have a great brand new technology that everybody's going to want. The margin is going to be tight, and I'm not sure that's going to be great for the industry. So, hopefully. Hopefully, uh, we continue to see this, these kind of technologies continue to improve, that we don't stagnate in those areas where we've had hit historical problems. So good on Libre Air for putting this together. I hope more companies are like them that can continue to improve the lifetimes of wind turbines. I think that there is some um, some factors in their their favour for you know being a, a profitable company compared to maybe if they were around five ten years ago because I, I do see definitely a trend to increasing um, lifetimes for the the wind farms. It's <clears throat> part of the mm. the drive uh, drive for lower costs is that you know the longer that it operates, the more more money you, you make. So yeah, I mean it's a financial thing, yeah. and then I also see. Um, a lot of OEMs offering service as a way to get more value out of their their products. So you know, like they, it's, and you see it in other industries as well, where it became so competitive for the you know the upfront capital cost. There's so much competition that it's very hard to make a significant profit on that. So then they look you know further to find value in other areas. So I see, especially in Australia, there's there's so many OEMs with um, service agreements now, and so then I mean there was always. Um, an incentive for manufacturers to have reliable products because, you know, if you've got a serial defect, then um, you're paying for it, even if it's out of warranty. But now when they're in charge of the the maintenance, anything that they save on maintenance goes directly in their pocket. So I think that there is much more push now for, um, yeah, focus on reduced maintenance requirements, um, increased lifetime. So the the time's right for the the product. So if it, you know, if it performs the way that it is expected, then that's going to be a valuable product. Well, and how are they going to be able to evaluate? Obviously, they need to get these new iterations and different configurations into turbines now, so they can start testing and see how 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 well they wear. How long before they can know? Like, yeah, this is going to actually extend service life. Like, does it have to go the full? you know, eight, 10 years where it would normally, you know, start to wear out or will they know in maybe like a year or two, like, Hey, this is definitely an improvement. You can do accelerated testing. Um, so they wouldn't, as a first, the first step would be to go put them on a, a wind turbine. They'd have it in a, a test facility. So something similar to the way that you test blades, you know, you, you stick a, a blade, um, in a, a test rig and then they put what they call an exciter on it that basically just makes it flap, flap up and down, um, 
and you just get, you know, over six months, you'll get uh, 30 years worth of, um, of, of flaps. Um, so that's what they'll be doing as well. It's a little bit different for the bearings. Obviously, they've got to rotate um, as, as well, which I, I, I'm not sure how exactly they test that. But my understanding is the most challenging part for bearings is actually when they're stationary. Um, that's when you get flat spots. And so they should be able to, uh, presumably they've already done it, um, do a lot of testing on the on the ground in an accelerated period. So from from that point of view, they should know most of what they need to know before they they ever get them out there. But I mean, they did mention in the article that they are planning it for older wind farms um, to do lifetime extension. And I mean, replacing a bearing is not easy. I mean, you've got to take at least the blade off, maybe the whole rotor off, and put it on the ground to to do that. I actually uh, I saw a really good time lapse of that on YouTube. Maybe I'll give you the link to put in the <coughs> in the notes but that is a major exercise and you definitely don't design a wind turbine expecting to change the the bearings in it I mean it happens but it's not <laughs> it's not your first intention that that would happen and definitely not on every turbine so um yeah much better to have the good bearing from the start yeah I love a good time lapse there's that's like one of the best media inventions of all time i think time lapses love, i mean how mesmerizing are they time lapses yeah, yeah they're mesmerizing <laughs> amazing so and bridges watching them build bridges and have them made in the middle that's um yeah that's really cool <laughs> i don't know how we build half the stuff that we humans can build so yeah the more we can demystify that in two minutes the better <laughs> Very true. Very true. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you listen. Definitely sign up for Uptime Tech News and Rosemary's YouTube channel, which you'll find in the description below. And be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, where you'll get also uh, notifications of new episodes, past episodes, all that good stuff. So thanks again, and we will see you here next week on Uptime. Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks, and being efficient with maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes.